0: How would you characterize genuine obedience? How do you know when you truly obeyed? Or or how would you recognize it in someone else? Let Let me phrase it this way. Parents, how do you know when your kids have obeyed and you're happy with it? That's probably a better way to put that. How do you know? Is it because the job actually got done, right? Whatever they're supposed to do actually happened, but there's there's another x factor to it, isn't there? Maybe there's minus this part in between or the rolling of the eyes, right? I mean when when you just you say something and they just I'm still waiting but you say something and it just happens you see that's what God wants from us his children he wants obedience but he wants obedience that's minus the attitude now I know nobody else in here gives God attitude right not ever we don't ever read scripture and we're like really God really love all your enemies can I just pick a few? You see, Jesus dealt with people who were difficult with him over and over and over again. And he kept coming back to the truth with them over and over again. And eventually there came a time where they started to ask him, well, who? what gives you the right? Where do you get this authority to do this? And they have a discussion that ensues and he gets into the parable And he tells a parable of two sons in order to illustrate the idea of obedience and repentance. And so look with me in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 28. And and Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Now that makes parents happy, right? No, but afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. That makes parents even happier than the first, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They being the Pharisees, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, like I said, this is kind of in the middle of a a broader discussion that's going on, which we're going to get into. But one of the, uh, the, the points that Jesus is wanting to make is that when we are Walking in discipleship with God, when we are following Jesus in true faith, one of the first things that happens to our heart is we become convicted of the truth. Conviction comes first. And when I say conviction, I mean the process whereby one is caused to reach certain conclusions or impressions in the mind. You're convinced. Okay, your mind is changed. You hear enough, you experience enough that your thinking now is new. It is changed and you adopt the way of thinking that was presented to you. Now, many of us in here, obviously you are in church on a Sunday morning. You at some point in your life have been convicted of a truth that it is important to gather with the people of God. You've been convinced of that. You see, conviction is when the truth does its work on our mind. And it changes us. It renews our mind. Conviction is not shame or guilt. Now, at the outset, it may feel the same. You know, somebody's like, well, I was pretty badly convicted and I felt guilty in the process. Well, here's the difference. Shame and guilt are emotional responses that have no genuine resolution Conviction always has a resolution. When God convicts us, it always has a resolution point. We know what we're supposed to do. We know which direction to go. And when we obey, it resolves. Shame and guilt do not resolve. They just hover. Anybody ever experienced that? they just hover. It's like a black cloud over your heart and your mind that you can't figure out what to do with it. And some people live their entire lives just shrouded by shame and guilt when Jesus came to set us free of that. But in order to be free from it, we have to be convicted of the truth. The truth must pierce our hearts and our minds. And so think of it this way. Conviction is when the truth as the Bible says it many times, cuts to the heart. Now when it cuts to the heart, what does that mean? It means it cuts through all the self-deception and self-righteousness so that we know that the truth applies to us. When we're convinced that what is being said, what is being taught is genuinely us. And so when people hear, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, if they're convinced that they're a sinner and that they need forgiveness, guess what? They're convicted of the truth, and there is a resolution point in that repent and be baptized. They know exactly what they're supposed to do. And so when we are convicted, we can't ignore it, right? Like it's one of the things that I've said is when we learn truth, Truth cannot be unlearned. You can't go back to a state in which you now, you you know, you didn't know it, now you know it. You can't go back to where you were before. You can't unlearn it because that's what truth does. Truth settles in and it convicts us and we have to make a decision as to whether or not we're going to embrace it or rebel against it, but we can't remove it from our lives. And so now it becomes an active choice what are we going to do with the truth? Because conviction is what happens first. Anytime God is doing something with us, he convicts us of the truth first. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I said this, was, this uh, parable was a part of a larger picture, okay? a larger conversation that was going on. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had been rebelling against the truth for over three years at this point, as Jesus and John the Baptist had been teaching it. They had been at odds with John, they were at odds with Jesus, and they couldn't figure out what was going on, but they knew they were convicted, and they wanted Jesus to stop, because if we rebel against the truth, what's the last thing we want to keep hearing? More truth. We want people to stop. And so... We have this, uh, this question that was put out there because this whole thing started when they came and asked Jesus, "What authority do you have to do this?" And, and so uh, listen with me in, in Matthew 21: 23 through27. It tw- uh, says, "And when he Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, "By what authority are you doing these things?" And who gave you this authority?" Jesus answered them, "I also will ask you one question." And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he tells the parable that we read. You see, what Jesus is doing is he goes all the way back to John the Baptist because it not only answers their question, but shows that they are actively rebelling against the truth. He has just entered into true conviction with these Pharisees and these scribes and these priests, these religious people who didn't want to actually embrace the truth. They just wanted to look the part. And so he shows that because John's message paved the way for Jesus's message. You see, we cannot believe Jesus without first believing John. We have that. That's why all of the Gospels start out with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the the voice of John the Baptist out there preaching and saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he started preaching it to everybody, saying you have to be convicted of the truth that you have sin in your life that is offensive to God, and you have to turn away from it, and when you do, there's one coming after me who you're going to want to listen to. There's one coming after me whom I'm not fit to even lace up his sandal, but you're going to want to listen to him. But to pave the road for that, for for Jesus's message, repentance first had to enter the picture. Conviction first had to enter the picture. And so these Pharisees felt conviction of the truth, but they were rebelling against it because they were convinced in their own mind, I don't have a problem. I'm okay. Now, this is the standard sinful human response to the righteousness of God. It it really is. No, no, that's, you know, everybody else's problem, not my own. (laughs) You ever notice how much easier it is to spot sin in other people? And then we pray our favorite prayer, God change them. What did Jesus come doing? He came and said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't talk about the speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye till you get rid of the plank in your own. Don't ignore the plank in your own. Remove it first, then you'll see clearly to help others. You see, Jesus came and John came both with the message that we have to look hard at ourselves before God before we start looking at other people. The Pharisees had that message completely backwards. They went around looking at everybody else, telling them how bad they were, and completely ignored the heart issues of the gospel, of of God's word. They they completely ignored the heart issues even of the law in the Old Testament. And Jesus saw this, John the Baptist saw this, and, and they weren't having it. And so I want you to remember these words as we move forward, okay? As difficult as they are, they apply to all of us. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now there's a question there at the end. Who can understand it? If my heart will lie to me, and it is as we see deceitful above all things... I mean, that is not exactly an endorsement for people, is it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what he's saying is that we really don't even understand what's going on in our own hearts. And so when, when truth comes along and convicts us, you know what it's doing? It's telling us what's going on. It's explaining the truth of the situation to us and letting us know, this is who you really are. This is how things really are. And most of the time, we don't like it immediately. We think, no, it's not that bad. Come on. Well, it is. And John showed up and said, hey, you all better repent. You all better do this. And he convicted them of the truth. And Jesus also convicts them of the truth. And they continue to ask over and over the same questions, hoping for a different answer. Now, how many of you have experienced that in your, in your life before, where somebody keeps asking the same question, hoping for a different answer? Have you ever done that with God? You keep praying the same thing, and God told you no, so you ask it a different way. If you have kids, you know you've done this. You know, they ask it this way, you said no, so what do they do? They think they'll outsmart you, and I'll end around you, and I'll ask it a totally different way. And you listen, and then you say what? Well, I said no before, still saying no. So then what? They think I'll just wear you down. And the reason I do this, I'm not picking on my kids or your kids, because we all do the same to God. We think, well, I'll just change his mind. Look, we're not changing God's mind when it comes to holiness and truth. It's up to us to agree with him. He's not going to change to agree with us. And so what do we do in this instance when we find out that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, and we want to know who can understand it? Well, listen to this. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and what? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, he told us, you don't understand your heart. It's, it's deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick, but I have a cure, and it's called the truth, and it's my word. The Word of God is living and active, and it will discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to know what's going on in your heart? Spend some time in the Word. And let it convict you. As hard as it is, that's the answer. You know, there's there's an old saying from an old preacher that said, an honest man with the Scripture and a pen and a pad will soon find what ails him. Because if we will spend our time in the Word of God, God is going to discern our hearts for us. He's going to tell us what's going on. And that conviction is going to come. It is the Word of God that, that, that convicts us in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts us and convinces us of the truth. Now, when we learn the truth, we have a choice to make. Do we agree with it? Or do we rebel against it? Now, initially, all of humanity rebels against it. Okay, I want you to know that. All of us. And that is the point of the parable that we read today, is that the father goes to the two sons, and to the first, he says, hey, go, go work in the field. And he says what? I'm not doing it. Fail. The second one says what? <laughs> sure, I'll do it and doesn't go guess what fail now in this passage this represents all of human history where you have the gentiles who didn't know god and just rebelled up front or you had the the jewish people in the old testament that said sure i'll do it but never followed through with what god said but the point is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god And so it's not about somebody that came along at some point and finally said, you know what, God, I'll do exactly what you said. When you said, with joy in my heart, I will do it. You know why? Because there's only one person that ever did that, and his name was Jesus. Everybody else failed. And once we are convicted of that failure, we then have a decision to make. What do we do next? What do we do next? Because in the story, there was one son that changed his mind and he went and obeyed. He's like, no, I won't do it. And then later he starts thinking, that was probably a bad thing. You know, dad provides a lot. He starts feeling bad about it. He's convicted in his spirit of the truth of the situation. And what does he do? He repents And goes and works in the field now let's get a good definition of repentance you know what repentance is it is simple it means to turn around and go the other way rather than persist in an error persist in a way of thinking to persist in an action to repent means to stop and simply turn around and go the other way so if we have a sin of pride in our life to repent would mean to embrace humility Turn away from pride and embrace the opposite of it and start walking the path of humility. That's what repentance is. And repentance only comes after conviction. We can't repent if we have no idea what we're repenting of. This is why a word and knowledge of the word is so important. Because we're not going to be convinced by our own consciences, which are seared, of the truth. We will not figure out the truth on our own. None of us wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I think I've been wrong about everything. Well, why do you think that? Well, I just figured it out. None of us will do that, ever. Because the heart is deceitful above all things. But as we embrace the Word of God, as we embrace the Scriptures, we learn the truth about ourselves, then we find out we are that son who has either said, no, I won't do it, or we're the one who lied and said we would and didn't. We're one of the two. And then we have a choice to make. Because this entire parable centers around the concept of repentance. And this is where John the Baptist enters into the picture. His entire ministry was to pave the road for Jesus by calling people to repentance. He preached the truth. You've sinned. The kingdom of God is coming. And he means that. He says Jesus is coming. So he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Get ready, folks. The biggest event in human history is about to happen. God is coming. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he came teaching this word, and people were convicted. People did realize, I am living in sin to God. And so he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, a baptism simply of repentance. New life wasn't yet being given because the Holy Spirit hadn't come, the sacrifice hadn't made. A whole lot still had to happen. This was simply a baptism of people acknowledging, I have sinned against God and I need to stop. I need to change. And even in that, lives were being changed. You had who? The tax collectors, the prostitutes. You had the sinners, the dregs of society. Were coming to John and he's preaching and teaching them. They're like, you know what? You're right. My life is offensive to God. I need to change. And they were being baptized. And it was revolutionary because not only were people changing their lives, this was for men and women, understand that. In that culture at that time, for John to be baptizing women, this truly was a revolutionary thing where he's like, no, you matter to God too, and your life matters to God. And he baptized enough people that it got the attention of the religious leaders who came out to see what was going on. Now, you know why they're coming out? Anybody have a guess? My guess is jealousy. These, the, these Pharisees and chief priests and scribes have been walking around pointing their finger at people, telling them how bad they were and how much they had sinned for years and really didn't have any fruit to show for it. And then this guy who wears camel hair and a leather belt and eats grasshoppers. Comes out and says, Hey, the kingdom of God's coming. You need to repent. And people are like, Cool. They come out and they're like, Hey, what gives? Why are they listening to you and not me? And when they show up, this is what was said to them. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He didn't hold back. The Pharisees showed up and he said, oh, really? Now you want in on this? Let me tell you what, you better repent too. You better do exactly what these people are doing because you are no different from them. Now, let me tell you, in that culture, in that time, I I don't think there's anything more offensive he could have said to these people. These Pharisees prided themselves on being righteous, of, of look at me, I've got it all together. And when he says you're no different from this person over here, They prided themselves on being different from the people over there. It was offensive. And yet, John demanded that they repent. And they refused to listen to him. And so then they come to Jesus, and what do they say? Hey, what authority do you have? And he says, okay, let's go back to the heart of the issue. John's baptism, did it come from heaven or from man? And they're like, oh great, here we go again. Are we really going back to John? Are we really going to talk about repentance now, Jesus? We're the Pharisees. I don't need to repent. And they won't answer. You see, there is no salvation without repentance. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel to the people of Jerusalem, and it says they were cut to the heart. They experienced conviction. And then they said, brothers, what must we do And this is Peter's response. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the first thing he tells them they have to do? Repent. Repent. Now they're already convicted of the truth, so now they have a decision to make. Do I accept the truth or do I rebel against it? And so when they ask, what must we do? They're saying, what comes next in this step? And Peter tells them, repentance. you got to turn away from your old life. You have to abandon the control you think you have over your life. You have to turn to God. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. We simply cannot merge our previous lives in the Spirit of God into one existence. And unfortunately, I see way too much of that happening in today's world. As I said last week, too many people, they got so much going on, and they just want to add God into it so that he'll make it all work. When God says what? He says, no, you need to repent. You've got to let go of how you understand life to be. You've got to let go of how you think about life. You've got to let go of all of it and repent from worldly thinking and turn away from it and put your faith in in God for everything God is not an add-on he is everything there is no salvation without repentance that's why John the Baptist came first in the big scheme of things because he came saying you better repent because if you don't you can't receive what's coming and it's conviction that leads to repentance but too many times, we want to merge them together. Or we just think, I don't have to change. Not this. Not whatever. I, it, we don't want to admit we're wrong. I don't know what it is, but the Old Testament called it being stiff-necked. And it's in the Old Testament when they just refuse God over and over. I tell you, if you've not read the stories of the Old Testament, I challenge you to do so because you just see over and over, every time a person comes to me that takes me up on that challenge, just read the stories, just go through and read them and learn them. They come back and they say, man, God is patient. Because he keeps telling them over and over, just stop doing this. Just stop. And they won't stop. And they, people come back to me all the time. I'm like, Why wouldn't they stop? God is so forgiving and so patient, and they just won't quit. In the Old Testament, it's called being stiff-necked. When we just get this stubbornness of heart that says, I will not bend. I won't give in to God. And it's a real thing. And if you think it stopped in the Old Testament, people are people, and people have been people for you a know, very long time. Ever since the Garden of Eden and and, and that failure, we have just been a stubborn, stiff-necked people in this world that just don't want to bend our will to God. And so every time we become convicted of truth, every time the truth does something to impact us, we have to check our own hearts and say, you know what, am I being stubborn here? Am I refusing? Am I agreeing intellectually with the truth while my heart remains unchanged? And we have to ask ourselves that over and over and over because many times this stubbornness is cloaked and hidden in religious activity. In this time of Jesus, at this moment, with this parable we're talking about, it was the the overly religious people that were the ones who had the biggest problem with Jesus. Who was it that was responding? The sinners. The people that were supposedly you know, completely separated from God and, had, and God was mad at them. And they're, they're the ones that were like, hey, I can turn away and try again. And Jesus and John are like, yes. And they're like, cool, I'll take it. I will do that. It was the people who, who kind of cloaked themselves in religious garb to hide their hearts that had the real trouble with Jesus. And they refused to repent. And then, how do we know repentance is real? How do we know when repentance has truly happened? Well, this brings us back to the beginning. Because obedience validates repentance. Actions change. We start doing what God told us to do. Now, we may not do it perfectly, but you know what? There's a huge difference between saying, no, I won't do it at all, and saying, you know what? I messed up. Now I'm going to go, and I'm going to go try to do what I'm supposed to do. And that's why when Jesus asked Him, He says, which one did the will of the Father? And they agreed, well, it was the first. Even though He said, I won't do it, He ended up actually doing it. It was His obedience that mattered in the end. And that's why, that's why Jesus says, look, you guys right here that we're talking right now, the Pharisees, he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. Because they are the ones willing to repent. They're the ones doing what they're supposed to be doing now. They're the ones following in faith while you're still here arguing with me. don't argue with God. And so listen once again, just to to the story. It says, a man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind. He repented and went and obeyed. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he said, I go, sir, but did not go, did not repent, did not obey, ignored conviction. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And then he says this. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe them. Even when they saw that the tax collectors and these people had changed their lives when they saw the obedience that came because of the, the, the repentance that John had preached. They saw it with their own eyes. They still refused to believe. Now, friends, that is called being stubborn. That they had the proof right in front of them and they refused to believe it. Nobody in the Pharisees or that group could say, well, I don't understand what he's saying. I don't understand the message. I don't understand what he's wanting me to repent of. Nobody could say that. They had heard the message clearly for years at that point, and they simply refused to do it. And so they rebelled against the truth. And until we ourselves walk in obedience, we cannot claim true repentance in this world. Because repentance is validated by obedience. You see, I gave the example earlier of if you struggle with the sin of pride and you're walking this way, you can say, well, okay, I repent of pride, but until you start practicing actual humility, you haven't turned away from pride. Because we will not exist and live in a vacuum. You can't stop one without filling it with something else. And so if we say we cease from pride, but we don't become humble, we have not truly ceased from pride. We are the son who says, sure, I'll do it, and then we don't do it. In the end, it's our obedience that proves our repentance. And so I want you to, with that in mind, I want you to think of what John had to say in his letter, 1 John. He says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now what John is saying right there is, he says, at the end of the day, it's obedience that matters. And he, I mean, he calls it as plainly as you can. He says, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Now why would John say this? Because at that point in the church there were a lot of people claiming, I know Jesus, I've met him, I've met him, and then their lives were no different from the world around them. And John had to write a letter and say, no. No, that's not how this works. Faith always is proven by obedience. Now faith comes first, and that's why I said conviction has to come first. We have to believe the truth in order to obey the truth. We have to submit to the truth in order to practice the truth. And so repentance, conviction, all of that must come first. It is what we call submitting to salvation, being saved, but we prove we are saved by obeying God. And John says, if we think that we can twist that to where obedience isn't necessary, he says we're lying. Now there was a verse I ask you to keep in mind through all of this, and what was it? The heart is deceptive above all things. You see, we will lie to ourselves and do a really good job of it, of telling ourselves we're walking with God when we really aren't. And so that's why we look at the commandments of God. We look into the Scriptures over and over and over so that we can know whether or not we're walking in the truth. Do we love as He loved? Do we forgive as He forgave? Do we give grace as He gave grace to us? Do we strive for holiness as Jesus walked in holiness? Are these the markers of our lives? If they're not, have we truly repented and been convicted of the truth? So, we repeat this process of, of, of hearing, being convicted, repenting, and obeying over and over and over in our lives. It is a never-ending circle until we enter into heaven. That is what our lives are to be. So what is success in the kingdom of God right now? Is it health and wealth and having no problems and a trouble-free life? No. Success for the Christian right now is obedience. It's faithfulness. Being faithful to the word that God has given you, walking in obedience, that is success. And repeating that over and over and over. And so I want you to, to, I'm going to close with with these words, but I want you to remember them. We must hear the word, be convicted by the word, repent of rebelling against the word, and then obey the word. If you need to write that down, write it down, because this is the process of discipleship in the Christian life. We study the word, we're convicted of the word, we realize we've been disobeying against the word, we stop rebelling against the word, and we obey the word. And it is a process that the Bible says is renewing the mind, where we are continually retrained in how we think, where we are continually brought to the light over and over to drive out the darkness that is in our hearts. And none of us perfects this until we get to heaven. So if you're still breathing air, you still engage in this process. (laughs) None of us graduates from this process while we're on earth. None of us. Now, I hope that that frees some of you from the guilt of not being perfect. Because God knows you're not going to be perfect, but don't use your imperfect humanity as an excuse for not dealing with sin. If there is known issues in your heart, bring it to God, repent and start working away, turn away from it, start obeying. And as God reveals something new later on, go through the same process again. And when this happens, rejoice that God is convicting you. You know why? Because if God's convicting you, he's treating you like children, which means you belong to him. It's when we've completely cashed it in and don't care about this anymore that there's a problem. You see, that was the first son. He didn't care. Sure, I'll do it, Dad. And he never obeyed. You see, he'd cashed it in. He didn't care. And while the other son, the first son, was rebellious, he still cared inside and he cared enough that when the truth convicted him, what did he do? I know I said no, Dad, but I'm sorry. I'm going to work. I'm going, I'm going. God would much rather us be the ones who come back and say, you know what, I was wrong, I'm sorry, here I am. That's the call. That's what the Christian life is. None of us gets it right the first time, but that doesn't mean we got to keep getting it wrong. We walk with Him in faithfulness in life, and that is success.